What's your name, buddy? Where are you going? Who are you? Well, I'm everybody who's nobody. I'm the nobody who's everybody. What's your racket? What do you do for a living? Well, I'm an engineer, musician, street cleaner, carpenter, teacher. How about a farmer? Also. Office clerk? Yes, ma'am. Mechanic? That's right. Housewife? Certainly. You said it. Uh huh. Absolutely. Bartender. Absolutely. Definitely. All of them I am the etc. and the and so forth that do the work. Now hold on here. What are you trying to give us? Are you an American? Am I an American? I'm just an Irish, Negro, Jewish, Italian, French, and English, Spanish, Russian, Chinese, Polish, Scotch, Hungarian, Litvak, Swedish, Finnish, Canadian, Greek, and Turk, and Czech, and double Czech American. And that ain't all. I was baptized Baptist, Methodist, Congregationist, Lutheran, Atheist, Roman, Catholic, Orthodox, Jewish, Presbyterian, Seventh-day Adventist, Mormon, Quaker, Christian, Scientist, and lots more. Welcome to Organize the Unorganized, a podcast from the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University and Jacobin Magazine. I'm your host, Benjamin Fong. On the last episode, we covered the great initial CIO victories in rubber, auto, and steel. By the summer of 1937, the CIO appeared to some as an ascendant behemoth, an organization that would not only successfully unionize the nation's mass production industries, but also overhaul American society in the process. This was ultimately more perception than reality. The CIO was, in labor historian Robert Zeger's words, a fragile juggernaut, but it's undeniable that the CIO broke through in an unprecedented way. How was it then that the CIO was finally able to make good on the decades-old dream of industrial unionism? This episode is devoted to this basic question, and here first is Dorothy Sue Cobble's answer to it. There are a lot of things that came together in the 30s. It was a kind of perfect storm. So it's a moment of capital crisis. Business leadership is discredited by the economic collapse. It's an era of mass unemployment, homelessness, anxiety, insecurity. So we've got a desperate working class. We've also got a working class that's infuriated by the petty tyranny of foremen and the relentless speed up of Ford's production. But this dream of organizing mass production has been around for a while. And there were certainly many other historic moments of economic crisis that didn't result and the organization of workers. So how did the CIO win? How did it take advantage of this moment? Um, I'll just lay out a couple of the key things that I think were important. And I would put right at the top of the list, the ability of workers to exert structural or positional power. So I think of the sit-down strike as extraordinarily effective in terms of stopping production and really creating chaos for employers. 
It only took a few people to make it effective. You didn't have to do much except stop work. But there were other forms of direct action too. The recognitional strike, which became illegal after 1947, was actually the primary way that uh, workers exerted pressure on employers and got them to agree to sign contracts. You know, so workers saw that these tactics were effective and they put them to good use. So, you know, it was a demand for unions that came from below. It wasn't the CIO imposing it. But there are other things that really made a difference as well. The political transformations of the 30s, the change in the Democratic Party and a New Deal administration willing to back workers' right to association and collective bargaining. There was enormous support from the public and from the political intellectual classes. You had a left that focused on worker power and had a class-oriented vision. Uh, It was a democratic movement that listened to workers, that channeled their needs, that wasn't afraid of new ideas. And lastly, I think one of the things that's always been most appealing to me about the CIO is that it spoke for the particular needs of the working class, but it also had a vision of how the labor movement could make the whole society better. It had what uh, some historians talk about as social unionism. So I think those are some of the things that really made a difference and enabled the transformation and rebuilding of the labor movement in the 30s and 40s. I think four elements of Cobble's account of the CIO's success are worth emphasizing here. First, ripe political conditions for organizing. Second, the willingness to use innovative tactics and, above all, the sit-down strike. Third, the influence of the left. And fourth, what historian and podcast guest Elizabeth Cohen has called the culture of unity bred by the CIO. The first two I've already covered in some detail. You could look to episode two for the part about the political conditions and episode three for the part about the innovative tactics. And so I won't rehash that material here. This episode will be focused on the latter two, beginning with the fact that the CIO was able to benefit from the commitment and experience of the left. Steve Frazier. Look, the CIO is successful to some degree because it has the energy of radicals, communists, socialists. These are people with long views, dedicated, experienced organizers, whether they came out of the Socialist Party, sometimes a few out of the IWW, mainly out of the Communist Party. The communists' approach to trade unions in the United States had gone through a few iterations by the time the CIO moment rolled around. David Brody. One of the sort of essential questions almost from the very beginning was whether the strategy of the the new party, so far as the labor movement was concerned, was whether you should create independent unions, radical communist industrial unions, or bore from within or within the AFL unions. And initially, the first significant leader of the uh, 
communist was William Z. Foster, who had been the leader of the steel strike in 1919 of the organizing committee. And he was a very inventive uh, labor leader. He advocated boring from within. The thing about the party was it went through changes that weren't related so much to what was going on in the U.S., but that was going on in the international movement and the Soviet Union. And so there was a shift in the late 20s to dual unionism and a more radical stance. The effort was to create new industrial unionism. didn't go very far. And then in the middle 1930s, the communists had, in part as a reaction to the rise of Hitler, began to look for allies and established the United Front, and it was called then the Popular Front. And they then began, what was essentially, again, boring from within, although they didn't use that term anymore. But the idea was that they would work within the existing unions. So at the founding of the CIO, the communists were fully invested in the new labor federation. And as I covered in episode two, John L. Lewis and other key CIO leaders were happy, at least at first, to exploit that investment. Again, David Brody and Jeremy Brecker. The Communist Party produced a whole fighting force of organizers. That is, communists were more dedicated they were more willing to take chances. Uh, they were hardworking. Uh, they became great organizers. And so in various unions, uh, sometimes spontaneously, uh, sometimes deliberately, communists became organizers and local leaders. In the case of the, of the Steelworkers Organizing Committee, quite a large number of the 200 organizers that were hired in this period, maybe some that's been suggested somewhere about 60 were members of the Communist Party, and they did great work. The Communist Party made the organization of the CIO a central objective in its strategy. And in a complementary way, John L. Lewis simply put a very significant number of communists on the CIO payroll and said, just go out and organize. And so in a sort of cannon fodder way, uh, not as an organized political force, but as hired organizers for the CIO, communists also played a role as activist militants. However, John L. Lewis and uh, top CIO brass were very aware of the potential political threat that this caused and uh, were very concerned to keep communist influence under control. There's a famous quote when Lewis was confronted about having had all these communists organizing the CIO when he said, when you go hunting, who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog? So in addition to the lovely metaphor of calling communists dogs, which I'm sure was not unintentional. It was also a highly contemptuous statement that he was in control uh, and people didn't need to worry about this. Now, there are a number of criticisms to be made of the communists, and I will return to this topic in later episodes. But in this early period, the role of energetic communist organizers was largely salutary. If they can be faulted at all, it was for devoting themselves too much to the CIO. Ahmed White. 
there's lots of examples that that underscore the effectiveness of communist organizing, the bravery and and diligence of communist organizing. And at the same time, I I, I think there's some reason to credit Stoutland's notion here that the, the, the communists were were too quick, maybe for their own interest, if indeed they were communist and going to be true to that, to surrender their independence to the CIO. And I think some would argue nowhere more so than in Steele, that the SWAC leadership was particularly hostile to the communist and uh, particularly quick to to persecute the communist. Now, that begs the question, uh, did the communists have any chance of establishing their own effective means of organizing in steel. And that's, uh, you know, that's quite debatable. They had, of course, attempted that in previous years, and, and it had not been entirely unsuccessful, but it was far, far, far from achieving the kind of mass organizing gains that the CIO had achieved. Now, this is a major point of contention among labor historians. Whether radicals too quickly surrendered their independence to the CIO as historian Stoughton Lind has argued, or whether they were right, essentially, to meld with the CIO in its moment of ascendance. Steve Fraser. Who knows, could that moment have developed beyond the institutionalization of collective bargaining through the CIO and its political representation by the Democratic Party? You know, I'm of two minds about that. I do think there was a lot of potential on the ground to move beyond that. For me, the early years of the Depression, the CIO, and even before the CIO, are the last moment, until maybe now, of a kind of anti-capitalist culture. Anti-capitalism was rife throughout the society, all over, not just among working people. And the last time that was the case was probably in the late 19th, early 20th century, when capitalism was really under the gun and you had organ, you know, the Socialist Party was an influence, the IWO was an influence, the Populist Party and the Cooperative Company. These were all mass movement critiques of capitalism. And I believe in some ways the CIO was the final act of that. But I really do think, given all that was going on in the 30s, that there was a kind of anti-capitalism afoot. But I think one of the Uh, reasons it doesn't go anywhere is the Communist Party. The Communist Party is not anti-capitalist. It's a powerful influence in the CIO. I don't think the CIO, I'm not so sure Flint happens without the Communist Party. I mean, they're important. But whatever the reasons, foreign or domestic, they are not a revolutionary force at that point. The, the, The United Front is, the Popular Front is not an attempt to move in the direction of socialism. It is a, a direction to move the country in a kind of American version, a rather tame version of social democracy, and the Communist Party buys into that. On the whole, however, my guests tended to emphasize that it's not exactly right to see the CIO as muting some more revolutionary potential, and that in fact workers were positively attracted to the more moderate vision generally projected by CIO leaders. Elizabeth Cohen. I think it's very important to recognize that workers can be attracted to a working class institution like a union without being politically radical and wanting a totally different kind of political system. And I saw when I investigated and researched working class life and values and voting and 
cultural life in Chicago in the 1930s that many of these workers really did believe in America. Some of them had served in World War I. They felt that they were loyal Americans. They paid their taxes to the extent people did at that time. They voted in when they could, many of them becoming citizens in the late 1920s and early 1930s and voting for the first time and voting for the Democratic Party in most cases. So they believed in America and they believed in the promise that America held out, but they felt that the system wasn't fair. And it is a great irony that employers had touted this welfare capitalism in the 1920s and recognized in doing that, yes, that workers want fair wages, they want a, a living wage, they want some benefits, they want a short vacation. And so in many of them felt that they were just asking for what was their due. David Brody similarly sees the CIO leadership's commitment to contract sanctity as very much in line with workers' desire for what he calls workplace contractualism, or the establishment of fairness in the workplace within a rule-bound system of management. What are workers actually want? That is, what, what are they looking for? What would satisfy them? That's a question that I've pondered over and written about. And if you look at how, on the shop floor level, organization developed during this period, there was something that other scholars refer to as industrial justice. That is, a conception on the part of workers that they wanted to be treated fairly. And fairly in the context of where and how they worked. These kinds of issues about fairness were especially important because before the unions got a hold of these great enterprises, the enterprises themselves have been going through an internal revolution and trying to create a system that would be regularized. And one of the questions had to do with, was there favoritism or not? Now, in the 1920s, when there was a lot of work, it wasn't so important. When you got to the early 1930s and people were being laid off, on what basis were they being laid off? If you were the friend of the foreman or a relative, you stayed on. If you weren't, you were laid off. Similarly with being rehired. It became more acute, this notion, because of what the companies themselves had done in trying to reorganize the workplace. So one of the things that industrial workers wanted was something which would guarantee that people would be treated equally and fairly. And you can see it particularly in the issue of seniority. That is the notion that the longer you stayed on the job, the more rights you had in it compared to somebody else. And when the early contracts were signed, that is even before there was a CIO, that is during the NRA period when there were local unions, it's a complicated story how how seniority became an issue at this period. It was put forward in an agreement in the automobile industry in 1934. Once it was stated as a sort of a general principle, the workers just grabbed onto it. And so we want everything to be determined by seniority. That would make it fair. Everybody will be treated equally. 
And the other issue had to do with our job classifications and pay rates. That is, we had gotten to the point in the 1920s where the companies wanted to rationalize the way they dealt with paid workers. You did this by setting up a job classification system and then putting the jobs in at the various slots so that each job carried a certain wage rate. The issue of justice that came up on the question of pay rates had to do with whether you were in the right slot or not. So if workers said, look, he's doing the same job that I'm doing and he's at a higher rate, that's unfair. So that was another issue to get fairness in the job classification system. Now, how did you do that? You did that by setting up what I've called workplace contractualism. That is, at the workplace, there was a contract that set out things like seniority rights and job classification, overtime, various things. So the way you got that was writing it into the contract when you had a grievance procedure with a shop steward representing workers when there was a dispute. That's what emerged even before the CIO. And that's the system that left-wing historians object to. Everything had to be regularized according to rule, and you had you couldn't go on unauthorized strike. Everything had to be controlled, but it captured what industrial workers thought of as industrial justice. So my view is that it was in this period, what we got was more or less inevitable. And an alternative, more radical system, it just wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Jeremy Brecker takes a somewhat different approach to the question of just how aligned the CIO's goals were with those of the workers they organized. Speculation about what workers really think is always somewhat questionable. And what workers want is not always what it may appear on the surface. My great mentor as a labor historian, David Montgomery, once said, what workers want is a function of what they think they can get. And so saying, oh, they only wanted to have better working conditions, or they only wanted to have higher wages, or they wanted a communist revolution, or they wanted the guy bossing them on the line to get off their back. All of those things have to be contextualized in terms of what did people think were the real possibilities. If the real possibilities changed, then people's definition of what they wanted would often change as well. There's a great quote from Frederick Douglass, who had been a slave and became a great uh, anti-slavery abolitionist leader, who said, the man who has a cruel master wants a kind master. The man who has a kind master wants no master at all. So the point is, what people want, and specifically, as David Montgomery said, what workers want is in large part a function of the real situation they're in and what they think they can get. The focus of the CIO was on negotiating contracts that would provide higher wages, negotiated hours of wages, and a grievance system that would provide some kind of fairness so that people couldn't be fired or disciplined without some kind of independent decider. So basically, a way of defending workers against favoritism. Another piece of that, uh, which did not arise immediately, but developed over time, was uh, seniority systems, so that 
hiring and layoffs and job advancement would be determined by a seniority system, which again was primarily a way of countering favoritism. So the early CIO contracts, these are the kinds of things that were in them. If a historian says that they didn't include Red Revolution because the workers weren't making revolution a goal, a historian who says that has strong reasons for saying that. And I wouldn't question that judgment. But in my studies of the CIO, a very major role in the motivation of workers was to get some degree of direct control over the conditions of work, not necessarily to take over, become the owners of the factory, or to have the factory taken over by the government, uh, run as a socialist enterprise, but it was to have some direct counterpower on the shop floor in the workplace. And the CIO unions, by and large, were very open to the idea uh, of what came to be known as management's right to manage. In fact, John L. Lewis said a CIO contract is all a company needs to protect it against sit-down strikes, lie-down strikes, or any other kind of strike. So he was actively marketing the CIO to employers as a vehicle for controlling uh, rank and file direct action around working condition conditions on the job. And there are extensive accounts, particularly in the auto industry, of how the United Auto Workers sent in what were described as strong-armed men into the plants to stop the workers from striking around immediate on-the-job conditions and grievances. So from that point of view, the idea that all the workers wanted was what was in the CIO contracts, and they didn't have other objectives that had to do with resting some degree of control over production, not necessarily over the company, over the economy, but over the actual conditions that they face day by day on the job. I would say there that the evidence that they did have such objectives is very, very strong. So from one angle... The left, in conjunction with the CIO, helped to diffuse an anti-capitalist moment, or at least excluded certain concerns of workers from the table. But as many of my guests emphasized, it was in the marriage of radical influence with the stability sought by CIO leaders that real gains were made. Here's Nelson Lichtenstein comparing an earlier moment of labor radicalism embodied in the industrial workers of the world and the CIO moment. The Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, had been a kind of uh, inspiration, uh, a radical inspiration to a generation of leftists, certainly who came of age in the 30s. But I think the CIO leaders, and, and including the radicals as well, understood that the industrial workers of the world had formally said, we don't want to sign contracts. We don't want to create a, create a big institution that hampers us, becomes a, a burden on us. You know, we're against that. And I think the CIO people, again, from the left to the right, it, it, I don't think there's any distinction between the most militant communist on this question and John L. Lewis said, well, no, we have a Wagner Act, which is based on the idea of having collective bargaining and signed legally enforceable contracts, and we're going to do that. (laughs) Now, here's the defense of a institutional unionism. Consciousness is episodic. 
today, you know, uh, we have uh, all sorts of enthusiasm for Starbucks baristas and whatnot. Uh, in 1935, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the New Deal and for unionism, and it had been true in 1919, you know, in this. Okay, consciousness is episodic. It, it can rise to great, almost revolutionary heights. Terrific. But it also can ebb. It also can go down. You can have recessions. You can have repression. You can have just the passage of time. You can have labor turnover, etc. And what a union does, a union that signs a collective bargaining contract, is it, it freezes the consciousness in a kind of institutional legal form so that in a, in a period of, of recession or repression or or just apathy, the union still exists. It's still there now, maybe run by kind of, you know, bureaucrats or something, uh, maybe run by you know, kind of uninspired people, but it still exists. It doesn't disappear. And what had happened with the industrial workers of the world and with many other unions that had been unable to form a, get a contract because there was no legal framework for that is they disappeared unions disappeared there's something worse than a bad union it's a no union (laughs) so again there was first a political opportunity that the cio took advantage of second there were militant and disruptive tactics employed that were effective given that political opportunity Third, there was the great energy and commitment of the left as channeled toward the stable end of collective bargaining. And finally, there was what Elizabeth Cohen called the culture of unity in her book, Making a New Deal. There was a big effort to organize for unions after World War I, and many of the same kinds of industries that would succeed in the late 1930s and during World War II had been the sites of those organizing campaigns after World War I. But they had failed there, and they'd failed for a lot of reasons, but that included the fact that the workers were still very divided among themselves. In many cases, they were first-generation immigrants, spoke different languages, lived in distinctive ethnic neighborhoods, didn't have a lot to do with people of other ethnicity. And of course, the big divide was race. The employers, in many cases, recruited African-Americans to be strike breakers. They lived in very isolated neighborhoods, many of them recent migrants to the north from the south. And many of the white ethnic working class saw African-Americans as really the enemy. So when the CIO sought to be more successful in the 1930s in its organizing campaign, it recognized that they had to overcome those social divides. They had to get workers to feel that they were part of a unified working class strategy. And that meant overcoming those ethnic differences and particularly overcoming those racial divides. And they employed a variety of strategies for doing that. But of course, it helped that by the 1930s, you're dealing with workers who have in fact shared more experiences. Many of them are second generation, not first generation. They speak English. They shared a lot of mass cultural experiences. They listened to the same radio programs. They went to the movies. They shared music. There were ways in which they had a common culture, and the CIO went out of its way to build on that common culture and, in fact, make the CIO part of that common culture. So, for example, when there was a big boxing match with Joe Lewis, they 
made that into a big event that would attract workers of different races and, and ethnicities. They developed uh, recreational activities, bowling leagues, for example, that would draw workers across lines of neighborhood and ethnicity. There were women's auxiliaries because, in fact, the unions saw membership as a family membership. Women were not, in many cases, in most cases, members, but they were organized in women's auxiliaries, which supported the unions with uh, various kinds of activities. And that would bring the women together. And we know that women are often sort of the, the culture preservers in families and make decisions about priorities of socializing and sociability. So there were many efforts made to convey to workers, you are all part of a common working class experience and a common working class culture. And the divisions among you are much less important than what you share. I know I am no stranger now. I know I am no stranger now. Since I've been introduced to the CIO, I know I ain't no stranger now. Original to that, I said, What is that? They said, That used to be since I've been introduced to the house of the Lord. I ain't no, I ain't. Well, when we got finished, it went like this. Run, scan, run to the boss and hide your face. Run to the boss. Run, scan, run to the boss and hide your face. Run to the boss. Oh, won't you run to the boss and hide your face? I ain't no, I ain't. According to Jeremy Brecker, that culture of unity made the CIO into a welcoming organizational envelope. There were things that the CIO contributed that were tremendously important to making that upsurge happen. One was the idea of inclusive unions and the fact that they organized and were open to both black and white workers, that in many cases they organized women workers, that they were very multi-ethnic in their approach, and that they involved workers across lines of different classes, uh, you know, the unskilled, skilled, different crafts, and so on, played a tremendous role in people's being able to overcome those barriers that have been so important in keeping workers separate and weak. And although there's no way to tell whether that could have happened without the role of the institutional CIO, there's no question that by creating an envelope, as we tend to say today, by creating an umbrella or a form in which people could pour in and then say, yes, we are all together in this organization, that that played a tremendous role. Overcoming divisions to make the CIO this inclusive organization was often a delicate affair. Eric Loomis. It was really hard. When CIO leadership, whether at the international level or at the local level, try to take on racial issues, and, and, and these would tend to be over things, sometimes hiring on the job, um, but also issues like public housing, you would see really sometimes, not always, but sometimes really significant rank and file reactions against leadership for doing things like trying to create, you know, desegregated public housing, right? The public housing was supposed to be for the workers 
the white workers and then these, you know, and now black workers are moving into Detroit or moving into Chicago or moving into Milwaukee. And then these white workers revolt against their own unions, right? Um, and you you see this on a number of occasions, you know, as early as 1940 or so in Detroit, you see workers uh, actually vote for Republican candidates based on a white backlash ticket over the issue of desegregating public housing. And so this is just after they won the UAW. So it's not necessarily a deep alliance. Um, and so this is something that union leaders have to take on very carefully, right? I mean, it's not that long before this that a lot of these industries, steel, mining, a couple of good examples of this, are incredibly divided by ethnicity, right, between different white ethnic groups. The race issue is really tricky, right? And it really depends on the individual at the international level. It depends on the industry, depends on the nature of the work. You know, by the 30s, say, packing house work, which is such difficult work, you know, that had become a pretty heavily Black job. In that scenario, there is, because of an already relatively high level of Black labor in that industry after, after 1919, creating a, a more of a multiracial union that fights against segregation made some sense and, and, and could be effective. But in other areas like, you know, where some of these UAW locals, where, again, you had large numbers of migrants coming up from places like Kentucky and West Virginia and Tennessee with long histories of white supremacy, Okay, yeah, they're activated on class now to a certain extent, and they're voting, they're becoming strong union members and all of this, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was going to cut against race, you know, after the Marshall Washington movement uh, forces Roosevelt to desegregate uh, industries that are doing defense work, which is basically all industries in, in the war. And so you begin to see, say, African-Americans be hired as things other than janitors and, and the like, and white workers often react very, very negatively to that. And so leadership just, it was, it was very much a walking on eggshells thing. But the demands of organizing made overcoming this delicate situation a necessity. Nelson Lichtenstein. You can find all sorts of racism, from steel to auto, you name it. But and this was true even of, of leaders who were, on a formal sense, you know, racist. When it came to having an organization or a, certainly a strike, well, wait a minute. You want to win? Okay. If the black workers are in the motor building, the, if the black workers split the throats of the cattle as they're on the disassembly line in packing house, I mean, you got to have black workers in your union. You can't exclude them. Ahmed White describes here the divided situation in steel and how SWAC organizers broke through racial and ethnic divisions. I think the SWAC in organizing did a quite good job. The industry had long been a kind of bastion of segregation. So there were black workers in steel, not least because tens of thousands had been brought into the mill towns for the express purpose of serving as strike breakers. And they stayed around and had become an integral part of those communities and those uh, workforces. And so, you know, 10% or so roughly of workers in uh, the industry were Black. There also was a great deal of ethnic diversity in the mills at a time when ethnic distinctions meant a lot more than they do today. And along the lines of both race and ethnicity, there was an extraordinary amount of segregation within the mills. And so Blacks were, of course, quite notoriously confined to the worst jobs in the mills, the, the coking plants, common labor, that sort of thing, and completely shut out of some of the higher paying and, and, and more pleasant jobs, and also shut out of the more skilled jobs. 
that was to a very considerable degree true of uh, low status ethnics who met with a similar kind of segregation in the plants. The CIO had to overcome that. It had to find a way to appeal to those workers who were at the bottom of the rungs of this system and who themselves had long perceived of unions as, and, and, and rightly so, as bound to exclude them or to use them, I think, as one person put it, as cat's paws in their dealings with employers. At the same time, the CIO had to appeal to old stock immigrants, Northern European workers who dominated the better jobs in the mills, appeal to them without generating among these workers the fear that they would lose too much of their privileges in an organizing campaign that sought to organize on an industrial basis, all the workers within these mills wall to wall. So the union actually had a pretty difficult task ahead of itself, and it managed it, I think, reasonably well. And it did so by First of all, making quite certain that its organizing core were all thoroughly representative of the people it was trying to organize. It did quite well at that. And having done that, was able to take the organizing campaign successfully into the still very much segregated communities where these various different workers lived. And so the organizing campaign is, is a case study and, a, again, a very effective one of the union's ability to penetrate the ethnic and racial enclaves. The organizers' notes are a really fascinating record of this, of their successful intrusion into penetration of whatever verbs they use, the churches, the fraternal organizations, the, the saloons and things like that, the bars and clubs where these workers lived and socialized. Part of what helped the CIO overcome divisions was the communists' strong commitment to racial egalitarianism. Nelson Lichtenstein and professor of history at the University of Minnesota, William P. Jones. One of the great things about the communist moment in American history is they understood very early on, really late 20s, early 30s, that, that there was a sizable black working class. You know, you had to have unity of the races to, to really make fundamental progress. You know, the period in which the CIO grew, the period between the mid-1930s to the mid-1940s was the period in which the Communist Party had its fastest growth in the United States. It had a significant influence in working class communities across the country. The, the Communist Party really distinguished itself by having, a, um, particularly in that period, a very strong position in favor of racial equality. It was in many ways probably the only mass interracial, largely white organization in the United States that took a very strong opposition to segregation and racial exclusion, racist violence. And so in that way, the people who were involved in the CIO, who were members of the Communist Party, brought that position into the CIO. I think that most of the leadership and most of the activists within the CIO embraced racial egalitarianism, of course, particularly the Black members, but many of the white members. So in that way, the communists weren't unique in that sense, but it was a it was an organization that had a particularly strong commitment to racial equality. As unions bureaucratized in the 40s and 50s and eliminated their left wings, their record on race would not be so positive. 
Some unions privileged certain jobs and handled grievance procedures and seniority programs in such a way that reinforced rather than transcended existing divides. But in this early phase, the CIO's effort at creating multi-ethnic and multi-racial solidarity was remarkably successful. Its approach to questions of gender, however, was far less challenging. Associate Professor of History at Indiana State University, Lisa Phillips, and Elizabeth Cohen. The umbrella organization of the CIO did not target women directly. But when there were women on the ground who were organizing and seeking a home in the CIO, they chartered them. We're thinking about the period, you know, 1950s and before. The idea among many of the leaders of the CIO was that the reason women had to work was because their husbands pay was just too low. This was not inconsistent with organized labor in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. So the point would have been to organize so that men's wages would be high enough so that their wives, daughters didn't have to work. And it wasn't until the the feminist movement, you know, of the 60s that you get some shipping away at that kind of overarching ideology. So the CIO, again, didn't deny the great on-the-ground work by laundry workers, women all over the country who, beauticians, waitresses, as Dorothy Sue has written about, if they were organizing and they needed a home, the CIO took them in. During World War II, within the defense industry, the CIO really pushed for women being paid a man's wage, given that men were fighting overseas. So there were key moments when the CIO really pushed for some version of gender equality in in important times. But I don't think you can say that it was organizing to break down a gender barrier by any means. For decades, the union call was for the family wage that could support the family. And that meant that the male breadwinner would earn enough to support that family. Of course, in reality, many women had to work, many children went to the workplace in order to keep the family afloat. But I think the premise was that what we're seeking is a good wage for the man, which will be a good living for the family. And women were involved in the CIO in the 1930s in these auxiliaries, and they did many things to support the union drives. But in many of, of course, mass production plants, they were not present as workers. That would come with the war uh, when many women went in to replace men who went off to serve. Though there were unions and workplaces like the garment trade where women did dominate. But in those cases, the leadership was mostly male. And it took a very long time for women to really be at the helm of those unions. There was still a kind of sexism in those unions that were dominated uh, by women. Despite its shortcomings, the CIO was largely successful at creating a culture of unity. Part of this had to do with its broader social vision and how it emphasized that what was good for the CIO was also good for America and vice versa. Steve Fraser and Professor of American Studies at the University of Toronto, Rick Halpern. The CIO, it practiced what we now nowadays call social unionism. That is to say, it was very conscious of itself as 
fighting not only for the rights of specific workers, say in the steel industry or the auto industry, the rubber industry to establish collective bargaining rights, but was part of a kind of broader social movement to establish dignity, a voice, a real political influence for the working class in America. And I think that gave them enormous political uh, traction and clout in the country. The CIO in this period of its history really was more than just a labor movement. It was becoming the social conscience of urban, ethnic, uh, racialized Americans in trying to transform the status quo. It was a movement that certainly was based in the working class, rooted in industrial workplaces, but was active well beyond the, the economic sphere. Our pioneers have left us a precious heritage. They gave us a concept of unionism, not as a business, but as a cause, as an ideal, as a trust, as a crusade. They never tolerated the idea that unions were just another business to be conducted as the personal property of any union official. In the union movement, in order to say, he must have a heart, he must have a soul, he must be idealistic, he must be devoted in order to be privileged to save humanity, to save progress, to save those who need his services. That was David Dubinsky speaking at the 25th anniversary of his presidency in Madison Square Garden. Thank you again for joining me on this week's episode of Organize the Unorganized. On next week's episode, Setback and Tragedy in the Little Steel Drive. I'll see you then.